for listening to this Aspen podcast on the impact of malnutrition on clinical outcomes in patients with COVID-19. My name is Kenneth Christopher. I'm editor-in-chief of JPEN. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Jana Ponce, who is assistant professor at the University of Nebraska and an inpatient clinical nutrition supervisor at Nebraska Medicine. She specializes in clinical nutrition and clinical research and is heavily involved with ICU nutrition. Dr. Ponce is first author of the JPEN original article entitled The Impact of Malnutrition on Clinical Outcomes in Patients Diagnosed with COVID-19. Dr. Ponce, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Christopher. You're most welcome. It's really fantastic to speak to a first author of what I consider a, quite a very nice novel, very well done paper. Thank you. Question first to you is, what motivated you to do the study? Sure. Well, I think, first of all, I've always been really interested as both a clinician and a researcher in malnutrition. And I think really early on in the pandemic, we could start to see that people with malnutrition who came into the hospital really didn't do well when they had COVID-19. And we saw that in the research articles that came out too. However, one thing that we really didn't know was really how the malnutrition was different based on if they had that malnutrition before they had COVID-19 or if they had got that malnutrition after they had COVID-19. The research that had been done previously, a lot of it had to do with nutrition screens. So maybe those patients had malnutrition before coming into the hospital, but there wasn't much out there that said, these are the outcomes that happened when patients developed malnutrition after developing COVID-19. So that was one of the really big motivating factors of completing the study. In addition, there just wasn't a lot of research done within the United States regarding malnutrition and COVID-19. So we really wanted to look at the prevalence of malnutrition here in the United States and compare that to other countries. Excellent. I was a renal ICU clinician at the very beginning of the pandemic, and I echo the observations that, that you made, and we were struggling to find uh, particular risk factors, and uh, malnutrition was one of those risk factors that we were seeing again and again, almost as if the host was not able to handle the level of viremia, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a very important, I think, topic uh, to research. In terms of your study, what or why did you choose your specific study design? Well, so what we used was the National COVID Cohort Collaborative, which is N3C is what they abbreviated to, and that's a just big data. So this is a huge data enclave, which has prospectively enrolled patients that either had COVID-19 or were diagnosed with COVID-19 by a provider. And it kind of kept all their medical records in addition to a two-year look back to, I think, 2018. So it just gave us a wealth of electronic health record data. And so we also were able to see confounding factors with this also that we were able to statistically adjust for. So we retrospectively kind of looked at this data and we were able to see really, really large numbers and kind of have a really good idea of across the United States, because this data enclave included data from 59 data partners across the United States, one of them included Nebraska Medicine. So we could see that this was not just one center um, not a single site that, you know, would diagnose malnutrition the same. We were looking at across the United States, 
different clinical sites. This could be um, a really small hospital or it could be a large academic medical center. And we hope that with the large study that we were able to kind of be able to generalize these results to the United States in general. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, amazing to have so much data, number one, um, and number two, such a large geographical reach. You know, you could say it's only single country, but having so many sites, the generalizability of the results are pretty hard to argue with. So I commend you for wrangling such a large data set. I do a lot of big data set analysis myself, and it, and it takes a lot of perseverance to, to work with these very, very large data sets. But it's also a testament to how we all responded uh, to the pandemic by being proactive and collecting data. That was really, really difficult at the beginning because mm -hmm. we were so overwhelmed. So it's a testament to all the providers who worked so hard on taking care of patients, but also thought about the, those particular important aspects in terms of how do we figure out this disease. What in your experience was the most difficult part of completing the study? Yeah, so as you mentioned, we, we utilized big data, which was amazing. But one thing that was really difficult was really getting a handle on how we were going to differentiate acute versus chronic nutrition or begin to introduce that in a large data set. As, as I think many people know, the big data set that we used only has discrete fields. So it was not like we could go back and chart review and kind of pick out kind of our own phenotype. We technically needed to come up with our own clinical concept set. And so our approach was really to use the ICD-10 diagnostic codes. And what we did was we looked through all the ICD-10 codes and picked out ones that we really thought encompassed malnutrition. So one thing that was difficult was that we knew that, you know, somebody in one part of the country may, or even in one clinic, provider to provider may diagnose malnutrition differently. We know it's pretty subjective. So somebody may see a person that is clearly malnourished and they may code that as cachexia while somebody else may see a very similar patient and code that as severe protein calorie malnutrition. We know that they're probably kind of meaning the same thing, but the only way we can really capture that is if we came up with a clinical concept set and kind of lumped that all together. So as a research team, we came up with that clinical concept set and it included multiple ICD-10 codes. And then we either, and we differentiated or began to differentiate the acute versus chronic malnutrition by saying, did those patients who were hospitalized with COVID-19 within 14 days of contracting the illness have one of those codes prior to coming into the hospital, or was that diagnosed after their COVID-19 infection? So I, that's really how we dealt with it. And of course, without a prospective trial with trained clinicians, we aren't able to use the gold standard, which would be to use the AND or Aspen guidelines for identifying and diagnosing malnutrition. But I think this was a really great way to start laying the groundwork of seeing What's the difference between these two things and starting to capture the clinical outcomes of patients who developed malnutrition while in the hospital? Yeah, I think that point is, is extremely important, this idea of laying the foundation, um, because we have to have information that's good or as good as it possibly can be before we do anything larger, bigger, more expensive, more difficult, like something that's prospective. ICD-9 coding, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, is the way that providers diagnose patients, and it's usually associated with billing. 
Um, and so nutrition codes themselves, although they are now somewhat detailed, they may not be used even if a patient has malnutrition. And so if, if they're used, the patient probably does. There will be patients who aren't coded because there was the provider wasn't interested or looking at that particular uh, diagnosis specifically. Um, and so it might not be coded. And so that's one of the hard things about working with ICD-9 codes in terms of trying to get the best possible information that you have and get as close to the truth. So I thought it was very interesting the way you combined uh, different codes and came up with an algorithm in terms of deciding malnutrition, yes, no, and also acute versus chronic. And um, that's very, you can see, well, that, that process probably took a large amount of time, a lot of discussion, and there wasn't anything to base it on. It wasn't as if somebody did exactly the same thing before you and you could just use this validated tool. So very challenging. Yes. And let me ask you, what was your most surprising finding? Well, the thing I think that was the most surprising was, although we understandably saw pretty low numbers of a history of malnutrition or hospital-acquired malnutrition, the, the results were just kind of remarkable. So we saw that people who were diagnosed with malnutrition were about 2.5 times more likely to die 5.7 times more likely to require mechanical ventilation, 13 times more likely to require uh, ECMO, and almost seven times more likely to develop a, a pressure injury. So those, those results, while we expected kind of different results, or we expected people with malnutrition to have poor outcomes, I don't think we expected the outcomes to be that severe. So it was very remarkable, and I think really shows how impactful nutrition is both in the outpatient world and as well as in the inpatient world. Yeah, that's, those are dramatic and remarkable findings, especially after controlling for confounding factors that could explain that association. I think that with that ICD-9 code, perhaps what you're seeing, and this might be borne out with more prospective studies, is that you're seeing the more intensely malnourished patients because, again, you know, who is coding the person? How are they being coded in terms of the ICD-9 codes? How are they assigned, et cetera, et cetera? And so perhaps what you're seeing, and you're seeing a very strong relationship, is you're seeing patients who are more overtly malnourished, sort of obviously malnourished, uh, relative to patients who might be at risk for malnutrition, et cetera. And so that, that fine granularity um, will be able to be discovered in a, another type of study, like a prospective study where as you said, you're relying on Aspen guidelines, et cetera, to determine really accurately uh, levels of malnutrition. But certainly, certainly the, the results are, are very sobering and it also illuminates a lot what many of us saw uh, clinically during especially the beginning of the pandemic in terms of patients who didn't do well and patients who did better. So yeah. uh, I think it's you know a, a testament to having the big data with so much data, and you're able to find uh, very conclusive patterns um, in terms of risk factors. If you had to do the study over, as in going back in time, what would you change about the study? Yeah, I mean, I think the hard thing about observational data is it's really hard to interpret causality. And I think we, you know, we really tried as hard as we could to really adjust for the confounding factors. And we were able to do that quite well using the big data that we had. But I think, you know, we're going to have to use this data and start to enroll people prospectively in order to validate our results. 
And we also, you know, we can't do randomized controlled trials with people with malnutrition. So I think the more of these observational trials we can do um, and see the results over and over so we can go to something more prospective, I think that's going to be the best thing that we can do to best guide our clinical practice. I think another really interesting part about the study and something that I'm really excited about is, you know, starting to look at that difference between acute versus chronic malnutrition mm -hmm. and really seeing if we are able to see a difference in outcomes and if different precision nutrition can be beneficial in those different populations rather than giving patients with malnutrition a blanket treatment. Right, right. And uh, it's an interesting point. I think the underlying point is, is that is COVID-19 just just a very severe acute illness. Mm -hmm. the particular patterns that you noticed in COVID, um, they may extend to all, let's say, ICU patients or all patients in terms of severity of illness. So those patients who have a more severe illness equating to hospitalization for COVID-19, you might be able to find those same patterns in more of a general population. The issue with COVID-19 is that we'll never have that spring 2020 again, where that right. intensity, where we had you know, no one vaccinated, a uh, large number of patients, et cetera. Um, and so even if you're to do a prospective study of COVID-19 now, the numbers are there, but the intensity of disease may not be because the, the, the penetrance of the vaccination campaigns, et cetera. So it's almost as if there was one chance to do this study that you did and you did it. And so yeah. I anticipate that it might not be possible to uh, recreate uh, the intensity of illness that you were seeing. Um, but I think it's really important for all of us to realize that observational data is often the best data that you can get. And you can make valid inferences on that data. But as you underlined, causality is a problem. You can't say that it causes this or that because data isn't set up that way structurally. Um, you can get close by doing appropriate adjustment, et cetera, and having big data and large numbers, but you can never, you, know, you can't say it's causal. And so that's, that makes a paper hard to write because you want to say that these things cause, malnutrition causes bad outcomes, but you can't quite get there. Um, so after doing all of this and after having the paper accepted and uh, gone through that whole process, what advice do you have for other investigators, especially other investigators who are perhaps first authors um, and perhaps younger investigators, et cetera? What advice do you have for other investigators? Sure. I think my biggest advice is to not be scared of big data. I think we haven't seen a ton of nutrition research using big data, and I think that's something that we really need to get into. I think it's something that really can help us guide our profession. Um, and it really expedites the research process and allows us to kind of get that observational data out there so that we can change practice more quickly. We actually use this data to really inform our practice at Nebraska Medicine and really expedite the, the nutrition care these patients were getting in order to hopefully decrease these devastating outcomes we saw. The second piece of advice that I would say is, you know, you can't do this alone, get an interdisciplinary team. And that includes somebody that specializes in bioinformatics. Get those people in your corner. They are amazing. Our expert person is named Jared and we couldn't have done this study without him. And it really opens your world to the type of research you're able to conduct and really leads you on a path of, of new discovery. And so I just say, you know, 
If you haven't done big data in the past, dip your toe in. It's amazing what you'll find. Great advice. I, I second that 10,000 times. It's uh, wonderful to work with large study samples. It's very hard to work with small study samples. So big data with all of its problems really, in my experience, um, opened up a whole window in terms of critical care outcomes, which is what I've researched uh, for uh, 10 years. And it was made possible by the, the advent of big data. This was um, nearly 10 years ago. Um, so the resources that are available in either public available data sets and either data sets that are um, government uh, publicly available, et cetera, is uh, immense. And so the idea of creating a team that uh, augments your strengths, that allows you to attain specialized knowledge and things like bioinformatics, statistics, natural language processing, scrubbing of uh, electronic medical records, those types of things, that takes time, but it's definitely worth the investment in your time and effort in terms of recruiting people to work with you. One last question I have, now that you have sort of turned the page on this study and it's accepted for publication, et cetera, what are you studying now? Uh, well, we're still studying nutrition and COVID-19. That's something I think we're still wanting to drill down a little bit further in, but now we've kind of turned our focus into studying long COVID and seeing uh, the, the impact of nutrition on patients with that new disease. And I think we're going to have some very novel and exciting findings uh, in that field as well. Yeah, I think, it, I think that you will find patterns that will validate the importance of, of nutrition in, in COVID patients. It'll be very interesting to see what you find. And with the, with the large data sets, again, with a large data set, you can find differences between groups if they're, the, if they're actually there. And sometimes those differences are very clinically meaningful. And that's going to be quite meaningful in terms of how we think about taking care of patients who have long COVID. And also adding to the information about long COVID, because it is a little bit, I don't want to call it mysterious, but it's not as well defined as, let's say, acute COVID illness. Mm -hmm. It's a syndrome and there's several aspects to it, et cetera. So it should be, should be a really ripe area for research. And I, I hope that your studies go well. And from the work that you've done on this paper, I am assured that they will do well. Because as I said, this was a wonderful paper, very well written, extremely well conducted. And you know, obviously you had the advantage of a large study sample, but it was also extremely well designed. Um, so kudos to you and your team. Thank you. We certainly appreciate it. And we appreciate all the support of Aspen. Absolutely. So thank you to Dr. Ponce for your expertise and your time. It was a delight to discuss your article. Um, and again, congratulations. Uh, we also want to thank our audience for listening to this Aspen podcast. And to support what we do, please share, subscribe, and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, and or SoundCloud. Thank you very much. Signing off, this is Kenneth Christopher. Take care, everybody.